Hey everybody, it's Drew from Sleep With Me, and I'm believe it or not, I'm live here uh, from Golden Gate Park, recorded live, uh, and I've got a little announcement. We're teaming up with a podcast app called Spoke to give you two exclusive episodes. Spoke is a new audio platform made by SiriusXM that creates podcast playlists to help you find new shows to listen to. The Spoke team handpicks the best moments from tons of podcasts and creates playlist clips so you can try a bunch of shows out and find something new to love. Each playlist has its own topic or theme. You could try out the Music Decoded playlist with clips all about unpacking and analyzing music, uh, or Slice of Life, which is all about the crazy or incredible things that happen to everyday people. Also, Spoke has fun, exclusive content from Farrell. And that's why I'm here live at Golden Gate Park. I just concluded uh, recording one of these episodes that's only going to be available exclusively on Spoke. I'm lying here in the grass. Uh, you definitely do not want to miss these special episodes. Download Spoke now. It's free in the App Store or on Google Play. And be sure to check out all of Sleep With Me's exclusive Spoke episodes. You can find them all at Spoke.com slash sleep with me that's spoke.com slash sleep with me check it out uh and i'll see you in golden gate park at stowe lake bye guys i want to tell you about a great sponsor i have bompus they're premium high performance athletic socks and they're so comfortable you're never going to want to take them off and because socks are the number one requested item in homeless shelters for every pair of socks purchased bompus donates one pair of those to those in need almost one million pairs donated to date 15 percent off the first purchase of four or more socks, plus free shipping. So go to getbompus.com slash feral and buy some comfortable socks. Hello and welcome to the 51st episode of Conversations with Matt Dwyer. 51. Can you, can you goddamn believe it? Um, so that means I'm coming up on a year. I'm very excited about that. Uh, if you haven't listened to my show before, boy, you've been missing out on 51 great episodes. <laughs> um, but it is uh, just what the title there implies. It is a conversation with me, Matt Dwyer, and a very interesting person. Uh, today I'm, I'm talking with Martine McDonough, and uh, she is a novelist, and she's a manager of some fancy rock and roll bands over there in uh, England. It's a very great conversation. Actually, I really loved talking with Martine, so uh, we'll get to that in a moment. There is, is something <laughs> kind of alarming that I've become aware of recently, and I've seen articles written about um, kind of people taking pride in their stupidity in our society and i part of me was kind of like yeah that's not really happening and then um i have the uh, grave misfortune of uh, working in a bar in los angeles on occasion uh thankful to have the job just want to throw that out there but you just you really see humanity at its worst and recently three conversations i either heard or was a part of one was some guys bragging yeah we're dumb motherfuckers but great tattoo artists but yeah we're really stupid and i was like really like 
you're you're proud of this. <laughs> and this guy truly was stupid. He couldn't add his tab at the end of the night. Like he couldn't, his brain couldn't function. He was also quite uh, loose with the booze, but uh, it's like... And then I heard another guy complaining about his friend, for his friend is articulate and uses words like draconian. And this offended him, that his friend is well-spoken. Because God knows I like all my friends to use uh, one-syllable words, keep it simple, uh, grammar, not necessarily an issue, um, or even depth of of subject matter. Just let's 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 keep it, let's talk about you know, reality television and uh, not the news, but just the, like, like some nanny killing a husband or something, you know, that's about as in depth as I want my news coverage to be. Cause I was watching CNN yesterday, which I never watch. And I was just, I was baffled by how fucking stupid the news was. <laughs> it was like, I'm thinking like of all the things going on in the world right now, there were exploring some trollop who, May have killed somebody in Italy, but may have not. And some other dumb trollop killing somebody. And it's like, like our programs on this shit. Like what? How is that news? It's, like, it's not. People are, you know. But, you know, Israel can bomb Syria. And that's, eh, you know, but we need to we need to really talk about this trollop killing this guy, maybe. Uh, that's that's going to affect our lives. That's going to af- not just affect our lives, but the lives of our children and the entire world. Uh, I also had some guy say to me the other day, like, uh, not a lot of pussy here. Not a lot of pussy in this bar. Like, I'm supposed to get on board. Like, yeah, you're right, dude. There's not a lot of women who can think and hold a conversation. They're just, their genitalia's not here that I don't, can't get in or may not get in it's like like why would you say that to a complete stranger you don't know me like maybe i don't like vaginas maybe i am incapable of an erection and thus the thought of a woman just makes me cry the the gentle sweet touch of a woman of her genitalia against mine could never happen because my penis don't work you don't know my history of life to say something so crass and weird to me but i'm just like uh how how is our world in this place (laughs) where we we can still openly objectify women and take pride in our stupidity what has happened i remember like i was thinking the other day is like i remember when it like people used to like read poetry like and talk about literature like that was like a thing to be like to read the latest books and to be knowledgeable of what was going on creatively and i don't think that was like i don't think i'm being a pretentious dickhead by saying that i really think there was a time where it was more like oh you do this you read books you have conversations and you don't be a narcissistic asshole. I don't know. That's, uh, I just, wouldn't it be great if that a new trend started where people started discussing novels and their importance on society? And that leads nicely into my conversation with Martine McDonough, who has written two 
well-received novels, as well as we talk about the music industry a little bit. So let's get into that conversation. accomplished fancy person uh, there's a there's a lot of uh, ground to cover with you because uh, you uh, do you ever just brag about how accomplished you are like at the grocery store or anything just like i've written two novels what? and i'm a i lecture about music do you mean, do you mean accomplished in a in a jane austen sense yes. so yes. i can play the piano can you play? I, I can do embroidery no i can't do either of those things actually but you you were a backup singer for james wasn't that correct and well, I was their manager, and the backup singing was kind of just a bit of fun, really. Oh, really? But yeah, yeah that was. A, how do you go from manager to backup singer? Because you, cause you kind of are the boss, and you'd be like, I'm going to do this? Um, no, more just kind of being in the studio at the point where they think, oh, let's try a female backup singer on this. And, uh, and someone says, you have a go. Had, so that, that's kind of how that works. Had you ever sang before? Um, yeah, I do, yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, I've, I've always kind of sung, I sung at, I sang, sang, bad English, sang at school, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I was in a kind of a, in a little indie band years and years ago that didn't do anything, and yeah, little bits, but I was never, um, I'm not a very good singer, I mean, I'm not a lead singer, really, so yeah, it's just a bit of fun. If if I've noticed anything in music, you don't have to sing to be super successful. No, that's true, but I think you do need to have um, character in your voice, and I don't think I do particularly. But, uh, how, so, did, oh, how did you get involved in managing bands? Because that's... A lot of people... Um, I, I, sorry, carry on. Oh, I was just getting... A lot of the people I know who've like managed bands just kind of stumbled into it. There's not like a formal background... Yeah. Yeah, I, I follow that pattern really. I, I, I would say drifted rather than stumbled. But um, I, I uh, yeah, I, I kind of I've always loved music since I was a kid, and I, um, I was working in record shops, and then I went to, um, I went to work at Rough Trade. You know, you know tr Rough Trade. I do know uh, Rough Trade. Like, yeah, and um, they had back in the eighties, they had a distribution service as well as the record label and I went to work at Rough Trade Distribution for a little bit and uh, while I was there um, I met some people that were setting up a PR company and they asked me if I wanted to be involved in that and we we did the PR for the factory label and um, James at that point were about to release their second single on factory this is a pretty long boring story no because um, the, uh, the factory sorry, scene yeah. is, is very fascinating to me yeah, there's a lot of mythology around Factory, that's for sure. And, um, and you were in the I mean, they, in the heart of that? I wouldn't say I was in the heart of it. I, I would say I was on the periphery of it. But um, I, I did have quite close associations with Factory because James were on Factory when I first started to manage them. And they um, and I also lived on the in the same building that factory had their offices i was on the my like my flat was the opposite door to the factory office so uh i was in and out of there all the time borrowing things and having cups of tea so yeah i, I kind of had good and alan erasmus from factory was actually my landlord so i had quite good strong links with factory but uh, i didn't i didn't actually work with them for very long because 
we just did that one single with James and then, uh, well, James did two singles. I did one single with them and then we um, signed to Sire Records. So we left Factory at that point. Yeah, um, yeah I think a lot of, uh, I think the American, like, sort of, uh, fascination with the factory scene is through the uh, 24-hour party people film, yeah. which I don't know how accurate that actually is. Um, I've, I haven't watched all of it. Um, I thought Steve Coogan did a brilliant job of portraying Tony Wilson. And uh, I, there, were, there were elements of it that I thought were quite accurate and elements of it that I just couldn't watch. But, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, factory... <laughs> Factory was always, you know, Factory always kind of had made this big thing of never doing any PR, but actually they did a lot of PR on their own, like, you know, for themselves. They 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 put a lot of energy into creating the Factory mythology, and um, you know that's that's partly why it was so successful. And they, you know, they signed some fantastic bands, made some fantastic records, and you know, music would be a independent music would be a very different thing without Factory, I think. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of uh, there's a couple local labels in Los Angeles that sort of kind of try to not the mystique element, but definitely the 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 no contracts and like uh, and even like merge. I think splits like everything fifty fifty once they get their profit back. It's kind of which is back in those days was pretty unheard of because record labels are classically known to be money grubbing whores, aren't they? <laughs> Well, they are, but you know what? That whole fifty-fifty split thing again is a bit of a myth because I actually did um, I did a, a kind of a very narrow comparison study um, with one band where I did uh, we did kind of multiple licensing. So we licensed their album in different markets to different labels, and in one market, out of interest, we did a standard kind of twenty percent deal that you would normally get with a major label and in another market we did a 50 50 um profit share percent yeah profit split and um we earned money on the 20 percent deal we didn't earn any money on the profit share and quite often the problem with those 50 50 deals is that you don't um you don't actually know what they're deducting before they decide what's profit and what isn't so or or the, their terms in the in the agreements are very very vague, so you know they can keep on deducting costs and deducting costs and deducting costs, so it never ever goes into profit, so you never actually make any money. So, um, at least with with a twenty percent split, you know you know that all you've got to earn back before you start to earn money is the advance that you've received. So, those deals, I actually prefer those deals; they're much clearer. And uh, but indie labels won't do them for that very reason. Is that um, is that sort of when you do lectures on the music industry? Is is those is that sort of the ground you cover? Um, yeah, I do a lot of yeah. I mean, a big part of management really is negotiating deals and going through contracts and trying to get the best deal possible for the artist. I mean, that's 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 a big part of the job, really. Yeah, because Steve Albini wrote an article maybe probably fifteen years ago that was an extensive like, here's how you're going to get fucked, and it's a lot. <laughs> it's like, and it's like you there can. There are so many ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's almost amazing that any bands in the '90s were able to make. Like, I mean, Nirvana made a lot of money, but it's like, I don't know. It seemed like a lot of bands were still getting pretty screwed pretty hard then. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the problem with the music industry is that it's 
there are two sides to the music industry. There's the music publishing side and there's the and then there's the recording side. And most bands kind of hit problems. On the recording side, most bands don't make any money, um, which is why the kind of the explosion of self-releasing is quite beneficial to bands because they can finally start to make some money from the exploitation of their recordings. Whereas um, on the publishing side, it's a kind of a much more straightforward business. You know, you just, they take a percent for what they do and and it's all very clear and they advance you what they think they can earn back and um, those deals are fairly straightforward and, and publishing's quite a lucrative um, side of the industry anyway because um, you generate royalties from lots of different aspects of your work such as you know synchronization and um, uh, I can't think of any other examples <laughs> I just I have a lot radio, of... you know radio play performance money all that kind of stuff so um, yeah so it's the recording side really where bands tend to get hammered yeah, I just I have a lot of friends in bands, and that's that's the one thing that suddenly, like this is some years ago, but suddenly just heard like always make sure you get your publishing because, and then you know they were, I think bands now make money, or at least the friends I know they make most the bulk of their income from if it lands in a TV show or a commercial, which is yeah, is uh, and it's like and now you kind of even have to tour more than you used to. Just like I know like Wilco had to tour for fucking years just so they could eat <laughs> which yeah i'm too lazy yeah. for that well and i think the bottom the bottom's falling out of that a little bit now as well i mean well certainly in the in uk and europe it is because of the recession um whereas five years ago a band could make you know probably third or even a half of their income would come from live performance but because people were paying people would go to shows they'd go to multiple shows they'd you know, whereas now I, I I think that's kind of dropping away a little bit, and there's a lot of bands on the road all the time, and there's too many gigs for people to choose from. So, um, I think that side of things is getting harder again. But yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, basically, if you can get a track placed in an advert, that can keep a band going for a year. You know, quite that can be their income for a year sorted out but the trouble with that is that you can't you know if you're a manager and you're putting a cash flow together you can't say right okay well in may we're going to get $150,000 from from a synchronization because you just don't know they always just come out of the blue <laughs> so <laughs> they literally come out of the blue so so you know that's money you can, you can never ever predict that you're going to get so it's it does make life a bit precarious but yeah, I have friends who are doing their 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 side project is solely to generate that sort of income to get placed in commercials and TV shows. Yeah, and it's like that's their whole. And then they have their band band. It's kind of it's actually the guy who does my theme music, oddly enough. But it's uh, and I was like, I never like you never heard of bands, right? Doing that in the past, yeah. just sort of like f trying to solely focus on getting commercial stuff just to so they can fucking eat. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, well, you know, if you think back kind of 15 years, it was unheard of. Bands bands absolutely shunned having their music um, synchronized to advertisements because they didn't, you know, it was, it was completely the uncool thing to do, to be associated with any kind of brand. And that's completely turned on its head now, you know, where everyone wants that association and it's to, to try to sell their music and everyone wants that money because it is such a lucrative 
source of income. So, you know, that's that's a huge cultural shift within the within the business really and within the way that artists think. But I don't I mean I'm sure I mean I there are plenty of people who write music for advertisements for money and for films and for placement in T V but most bands I kind of come across and bands that I work with don't ever go into the studio. Well, at least I don't think they do. <laughs> Thinking, you know, well, well, this is, let's write this song for, uh, you know, for Coca-Cola. One of the um, most evil corporations of all time. <laughs> I don't know if you know. Well, they're pure evil. Allegedly. <laughs> um, Personally, I don't drink the stuff, but. No, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, pretty goddamn awful for your mm. body. Um, yes. Yeah, what do you think? What do you think that is? That what do you think that change is? That is it more just of an economics that bands are more willing to be? Because in the nineties, it was like the big thing was don't don't sell out, don't sell out, and then yeah. of course then you turn forty and you're like, fuck, I should have sold out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh shit! I've got two kids. I've got a mortgage. <laughs> Somebody get me an ab. Because <laughs> even like that that is even like in Los Angeles where actors and stuff used to be like, oh, if you do movies, you don't do television. Uh, and you definitely don't do commercials. And now you see a great number of celebrities endorsing things. And it's like, it's got to be economics. Or I, I also just feel like maybe yeah. we're in a bit more of a uh, a very selfish, just get what you can era, which also probably might be due to economics because it's, it's... Yeah, I th- yeah there's, a, there's a lot of different factors probably. I mean, I think, um, yeah, there is that kind of, cultural celebrity thing that ties into all of that and then there's I think the pressure from labels probably to have those brand associations and endorsements is 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 quite strong because um the possibility for for labels to earn money from sales is is diminished so they they need to pressurize their artists to try to you know try to get income from other sources because because the labels also if you synchronize a track the labels also earn money for the use of the recording from that so it's not all publishing money so um so it's a it's a lucrative source of income on both sides so on recording and publishing so i you know i think it's probably a combination of all those things that you know and, and i think it's just i mean moby kind of was the flagship wasn't he that was that was the um that was a turning point that that Moby album, where I think he synchronized every single track off that album was used in in advertisements somewhere in the world, yeah, and he... earned him an absolute fortune. And I think artists suddenly went, "Oh, blimey, you know, that much money for a... <laughs> well, maybe I do want to do that after all." <laughs> yeah, I mean, he said, "I don't." He's like, "I don't know how long this sort of sound is going to last." He's like, "I gotta, I gotta grab it while I can." And at the time, I was like. Okay, guy. <laughs> like, I judged it mm. a little bit, but I was like, he owns a he owns an apartment building in like a you know a, a building in Manhattan. So, who's smarter? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he might be the smarter one of the two. Ah, yeah, but has he got his integrity? <laughs> hey, I got my integrity, and you should see my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> well, me too. I'm homeless. <laughs> You're, now, now, how did you go? Yeah, you travel a lot. You're kind of a big. Uh, you, I like to move around. Yeah. You're. Would you say um, free spirited? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, not especially. <laughs> is that just part of like part of your writing world? Do you like to go because like you're researching something now in 
are, are you specifically in Redondo Beach to research a book on, uh, is it a, a novel about narcissism? It's it's a novel, yeah. It's, um, yeah, that one element, the, the kind of, the, the principal narrator in the book has grown up here. He's 21 and he, he's been in Redondo since he was 10. So I kind of wanted to come here to just get the feel for it and get, get the language really, trying to try and get the, it's going to be really hard to write a novel in a voice that's not one I'm that familiar with. So um, that, was, that was partly why I wanted to be here was to get that voice um, and pick up, you know, pick up some vernacular and things like that. So um, that's, yeah, I mean, my other reason for being here is my son lives not far away. So um, I thought I'd take the opportunity to, to spend three months near him. So. <laughs> What about what is it the thing that like because I just I read that it, it, you're working on something about narcissism and is it is there something culturally going on because I do feel like we're presently in a very narcissistic era <laughs> for, with uh, you know social media and it's a very especially in Los Angeles it's a very hey look at me world was there- yeah I, definitely I mean I I think it's everywhere and, and there was a book. Um, a few years ago, a friend recommended this book to me called The Culture of Narcissism by a guy called um, Christopher Lash, who's an American academic. And it was, it was actually published in 1979. Um, and he kind of um, explores the, uh, the consumerist culture and, and kind of predicts where he thinks it'll end up. And he very much predicts that whole kind of narcissistic, self-obsessed self-absorbed um culture which that we do seem to have um manufactured quite nicely for ourselves now so um but i I mean really you don't you don't need to come to la to study narcissism i think it's really quite widespread i mean certainly in the uk it's i I think it kind of under it seems to underlie everything I, i think narcissism and capitalism are kind of um important bedfellows really i th- i think capitalism if you, if you're narcissistic and your and your sole focus in life is is satisfying your own needs then then capitalism is going to love you because you know if that involves <laughs> spending money on yourself <laughs> then um then it's a win win on both sides really yeah i was re- so I, I read a quote from um um, now I can't think of his name. It's oddly enough Uma Thurman's dad, who's a big uh, teaches Buddhist. Oh, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. Is it Paul? No, what's his name? Is should... it Roger or Paul or something? We'll, we'll say it's Roger Paul Thurman. Because <laughs> they're, they're very similar names, aren't they, Roger and Paul? Yes. <laughs> Easy to mistake. <laughs> but he was saying like how we're in a. He's like you know we're in a very dark time because he's like you. We think we're very advanced and we got all this stuff going on, but he's like people are really just so like lost within themselves these days it's like it's almost alarming and it is kind of it's like it's like mm. i don't know how healthy that being that self-serving it 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 seems like a it seems like a bad phase humanity is in and i i don't i hopefully we can shake out of it yeah i, I mean i think it's certainly very on a kind of a day-to-day level it's certainly very irritating you know if you're walking down the street and someone's just walking in front of you and they've got no sense of who else is around them at all you know they, their only concern is 
themselves and what they want to do and the fact that they want to stop in the middle of the road and just trip you up. You know, I think that's on, on a very basic level, I think it's very kind of apparent, you know, that lack of peripheral vision almost, you know, and, and that must have a kind of a bigger impact on how people interact I have to say we, I can't separate myself off from it, from, from the rest of the world, you know, so, I know, I think it's quite fascinating. I mean, I, I started to read about narcissism a few years ago, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Once, once you kind of look at the basic characteristics of it, I mean, it's very black and white, it's not, it's not a particularly complicated disorder in a way, you know, it has very, very distinct characteristics, and... Um, in its extreme form, I'm, I'm kind of, for the book, I'm, I'm looking at it very specifically um, from a point of view. Of, I have a, a central character who's um, he's a kind of a narcissist with a guru complex. So he's, you know, he's, he's very concerned um, with his own interests and only concerned with that, really. And, um, and, and the, one of the things, one of the kind of characteristics of narcissism is that um, you have to surround yourself with people who um, reflect an image of you that is positive. Um, so, you know, it's that whole adoring audience thing. So, so anyone who's kind of who's a, an extreme narcissist, because most people aren't that extreme. I think everyone has a, a smidge of narcissism in them. But in people that it's you know when you meet people who are extreme narcissists extremely narcissistic then it's really quite scary uh it's, it's you know the, the lengths they will go to to get what they want and to you know and to um feed themselves with a positive image of themselves um at whatever cost is is horrible really Would you, they're not nice people no yeah it seems like i was i was going to ask like if you if you've noticed with these people if there's a lack of empathy because i i feel like I'm noticing less and less empathy with the world around myself, and I, I, it's, and I, that's probably, I mean, partly due to this weird narcissist, because it's like you can't be empathetic to suffering people if, if you're worried about yeah. your goddamn uh, Twitter feed and your hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and your shoes. Come on. Let's broaden it out a little bit. And um, it, it, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean, to I just I thought your guru complex thing is interesting too because I I've heard people say like I want to be a guru and it's like you don't get to make that call. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah, you have to know something about things to be a guru, to be a real guru. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a, well, I I read a book again a few years ago by um, there's a, a kind of a really eminent. British psychologist called um, Dr. Anthony Storr, who, who's dead now, but he wrote this fantastic book called Feet of Clay, which he, um, in which he studies lots of different gurus and tries to determine, you know, I think the point of the book was to determine what are the kind of defining characteristics of somebody who takes on that role. And basically it all boils down to narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and that kind of, that's, that was one of the things that, got me got me rolling really so, so could it's, we, a, it's a fascinating subject could we say the buddha was a narcissist um <laughs> i was kidding but it's i mean it is i don't i don't well he probably was if he existed he probably was 
I, it's, there's a documentary on Netflix I watched recently of a guy who fakes being a guru to see how far he could go with it, and it's kind of... Oh. It's... it's What's, uh, what's it called? I forget. I, th- I want to say it's Dondo or something. The documentary is pretty good. It it kind of falls apart towards the end, but it's like uh, it the it's like the end becomes a little too reality TV showish. But it's uh, it's kind of amazing how people just are. If you're seeking something, you will you will, and and I guess if you lack self awareness or something, you will glob onto something and believe it. <laughs> it's like it's kind yeah. of amazing. Well, that's that's what's really fascinating. I think is is. You know, that's the thing that I can't quite get to grips with. Well, how do people fall for it? You know, it's like, why do people fall for this? And I think that, um, I mean, I think, A, that they have to be, they have to be looking for something. They have to be, you know, needy is not a particularly nice word, but, you know, they, they have to be vulnerable, possibly, or, you know, just searching for some kind of meaning for something. And then that combined with the extreme charisma that most narcissists have, because they have to be charismatic to pull people in to get them to do what they want, to manipulate them. So I think those two things combined, it's kind of a chemical thing between the two parties. I don't think it's all one side or all the other. I think it's the... But it, yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. But as you talk about documentaries, you just reminded me of... Um, some friends of mine in the UK made this fantastic documentary um, called Philip and His Seven Wives, which is about um, a guy who lived in Brighton, where I live in the UK, um, who's, um, he's an ex-rabbi, and he had, he had seven wives, basically, and, and various children, and they all lived together in one house. Um, and so the documentary was about that, but, he, um, but there was this fantastic scene where he called a meeting at, 5.30 in the morning or something and everyone was sitting around the kitchen table and all the kids were off in another room and um, you start off you, you you just hear his disembodied voice talking to all these women and, and them having various emotional responses to that and the camera pans around the table and he's talking into a microphone <laughs> but literally no one is more than two feet away from him wow. so he's a uh, yeah, and that's to me that you know that's a fantastic symbol of of that kind of narcissistic impulse, really. You know, it's like, well, yeah, I need a PA system for this meeting uh, in my own kitchen. I'm going to start carrying one of those around with me everywhere, just to, <laughs> you know, when ordering sandwiches at the deli and whatnot. Yeah, no. yeah, I think that's it. Certainly helps your self sense of self importance, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how did you go from? The music industry. I mean, I, I'm assuming you you've always written, and I mean, because that's a you, that's a kind of I don't know. Is it a big shift to go from managing bands to writing novels? And if and your first novel was quite critically critically acclaimed. Both of them are actually. I mean, it's a um, quite an achievement. Well, the second one's not been out very long. It hasn't had that many reviews yet. But the, um, the yeah, the first one got a few nice reviews from places like The Guardian and um, a couple of magazines. And, yeah, it kind of, it, you know, mixed reviews. Not everybody loved it. It got some right well, they're fucking assholes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what well, I yeah, see. I think that too, but <laughs> they just don't get it. Um, but... 
Yeah, um, it, well, it, it's kind of been a fairly... I mean, I've, I have always written, as, as you said. I've, I've written since I was a kid. So um, it's always been something I've wanted to do more of. And um, when I... I used to manage a band called James. When I finished managing them, I went to university as a, as a mature student and did a degree. And the idea then was I want to start thinking a bit more about being a writer. And, and then I did a master's degree... And it kind of grew out of that, really. I started to write my first novel while I was doing my master's degree. Um, and then by a, by a sequence of kind of flukes, really, it got published. And um, and I've kind of carried on. And, and I, I, I'm still working in music, too. Um, so I now have two jobs that don't really pay anything. <laughs> 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 um which is great, um, and then, uh, but I, but I'm finding now that more and more I need more time for writing. I kind of, it seems to be kind of shifting more naturally in that direction, and um, I'm, I'm really my management role is kind of part time and much more on a kind of consultation yeah. basis. It's it- um, it's I write as well, and it's interesting because it is something I have done since I was a child. And it is something right. you can... Do you write fiction? Uh, I write a, a wide variety of things. And uh, f- I do write fiction like I've, and uh, essays based on my horrible uh, life. <laughs> but th- right. I spin them to be comedic. <laughs> but but it, it's, it's something you don't... It is that, like when people say, it's like, oh, you know if you're a writer. It's like, it's not something... Whether I make a shit ton of money or if I'm like scribbling on, you know, paper wrapped around a hanger or something. It's something you can't sort of it's like a disease or something you can't yeah, shake it yeah no it is it's a horrible compulsion isn't it it's like i don't even d- enjoy it that much you know it's just you just kind of can't do it you can't not do it i mean i, I think um yeah I, I don't know i don't know what it is it's strange isn't it and i, I think for me it kind of the thing i always say if people say well why do you write i say well it gives me a place to go and i think that's it it's I do. I have long periods of time where I actually just like to be on my own, and and that can be pretty boring if you haven't got something to do like writing, really. So, um, uh, yeah. But, but uh, would you agree with that? Do, I mean, do you, do Absol- you think it's a compulsion? Absolutely, and it is. It's because I, there's something I'm uh, stirring up that I want to work on. That's a bigger thing, and it's like, and immediately the rest of the world's like becomes on an annoyance where you're just like, I don't, I don't want to do this. Like, go fuck yourselves. Like, I, I need to be alone. I need to work on this. It becomes, I don't know if that's even healthy. <laughs> it's like, you want to yeah. shut off. Well, no, I, I think it's perfectly healthy. What's wrong with it? I mean, you know, not everyone wants to be in the middle of everything all the time. And, and it's wrong to assume that they do, really. And, and, and I think, I, I don't know if you've read, have you read that book? Um, oh, what's her name? It's called Quiet. It's quite a recent book. Um, it's it's not fiction. It's non-fiction. And oh, Susan, somebody. It's a fantastic book, and it's about how culture is, um, or kind of modern culture is very much directed at the noisy people. You know, it's like if you're noisy, you're seen as successful, and you know, and quite often it's the noisy people who make a lot of the mistakes, and you know, send everything up the swanee. And um, and I and I think you know. The, the, the introvert is, is underrated, definitely. Um, most artists seem to be in, relatively introverted, or all the, all the nicest artists that I've ever met are 
kind of quite introverted people and and quiet people and you know I don't, there's nothing wrong with being the kind of person that doesn't have to be out at nightclubs every night of the week and you know be in the center of attention I think bring back the thinker yeah I, I i was <laughs> i read a series of articles about the that exact thing like within the last few years and the the thing about uh extroverts is they the uh, one article is saying is that they are they're thinking out loud <laughs> where introverts are yeah. processing and actually being more careful about the process or and where and it is and it's like I have a lot of extroverted friends, and I can't be around it for a long time. It, it, it shuts mm. me down. It's, it's, and I, I can't. I, I was at a wedding the other day, and I just kind of vanished because <laughs> I was like, yeah. I was like, I can't. I'm like, I was just like, I can't take all this people. Like it just, yeah. And I probably should have said goodbye to people, but I was just like, I just like, I gotta get out of here. Like that was, it was like almost instinct, like. You know, but yeah. then I was like, and I was gone. Yeah, no, I I totally get that. I mean, you know, I've done that a gazillion times. I think the number of times I've kind of been confronted with a, a meet and greet after a gig, you know, when everybody's going to be there, and it's like you just say, "Oh my god, I can't do it." You know, it's like it makes you. So I I don't know about you, but I always feel like a real prima donna when I do it. But I actually can't not do it. It, it makes you know I, I I get really anxious in that situation. And if if people are making a lot of noise around me, I get really anxious. You know, if I'm on a train and there's even if someone's eating a packet of crisps really loudly or a <laughs> or an apple, I have to move. I can't bear it. It's that yeah, kind I... of it's like an imposition somehow. And then. It, it, it actually has an effect on my nerves where I, I kind of, oh God, I sound like a complete narcissist now, but, you know, it's like where that makes my nerves tingle like someone's scraping a blackboard or something. No, I totally get it. And like, first, eating noises are the worst thing on earth anyway, but it's like, oh yeah. <laughs> but I, I, the the building I live in uh, used to be super quiet. Now the fucking guy upstairs for me plays bass or something. Oh. And it's just like, and it's like once I hear, the, and it's not even that loud, but it like makes me like it makes me tense. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think once you've heard it, you can't not hear it anymore. I mean, sometimes noise. Like I can go and work in a cafe where there's lots of noise around and people are talking, and and I can completely shut it out, and it really doesn't bother me. In fact, I quite like it sometimes. But if there's one person whose voice I don't like, I have to leave. It's, it's kind of it's it's always kind of one noise that sticks out from it. It must be a certain frequency or something like that. I don't know, um, but it's yeah. It, it can be very uncomfortable, and yeah, you do feel a bit weird running away. But yeah, uh, well, sometimes sometimes <laughs> people get used to it. Yeah, some of my <laughs> friends I think uh, believe I'm a bit of a weirdo because they're like, "Hey, where, where'd you go?" And I was like, "You can't say <laughs> like." Um, <laughs> I just couldn't take it. It's like it's yeah. nothing against you. It's just I. It was too much I to handle. Take the jollity, yeah. And I was, people were having too good of a time. I had to leave. Yes, and I was, you know, I was full of booze, so that didn't, uh, that wasn't helping either. But no. <laughs> well, then it's harder to find the door. Obviously. <laughs> I did. I got lost actually trying to get home. <laughs> 
But also, you. Well, so you drink drive? Is that what you're saying? Oh no, I I was trying to find a cab, but I I went down the wrong uh, street and I ended up I don't know where the fuck I ended up. It was amazing. <laughs> it was like, but it was like one of those neighborhoods of like you know I was I'm like oh I'm gonna get killed. Yeah. <laughs> now, your subject matter in your books are, it's interesting because I I feel like is my writery stuff a lot of thematically is I, I feel like I'm very similar and whatnot but you you seem to have like like your characters and everything seems to be vastly different which I think is really interesting is that do you consciously choose that or do your ideas just pop in your head and you go that's what I'm going to do um <laughs> did I just did I just stump you I don't you? know um I've what do you mean? The, the two books are different. The characters, they're, they're kind of... Well, yeah, the first one's like, there's, it's due to, it's like a climate change, and then the second one's yeah. more of a, like a, is, I forget what it, how old the per, the individual is. Um, oh, he's 19. 19. Yeah, the one who dies. He, yeah. It's, well, like, but in a way, there's, I mean, there is a similarity between the theme of the book. In the, I mean, the first one is, um, it's a dystopian thriller, so it's set in the future, um, and it's it's so it's about you know the world's kind of gone to pot, There's, you know, due to climate change. It's um, do you say that in America? You probably don't, do you? Did what? Did it go into pot? Or, or... <laughs> yeah. Do you say that? I say that. What would you say? I w- oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a yeah. We have that expression. We probably got it from you guys uh, since we got most things. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. We get a lot from you now too. Yeah. Like mocha frappuccinos and things like that. Sorry about um, that. <laughs> that's all right. I quite like them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, then yeah. The first one is about climate change, the kind of the impact of climate change, and I was I, I was very um, very much thinking about what the impact of climate change might be on on an individual's psychology, and, and in this case, it's an individual's psychology who's not all that, she's, the, the main character's not, she's not all that stable to start with. So, um, so with the combined effects of what ha- what's happening in the environment and what's happening in the communities around her, kind of send her well and truly kind of uh, over, over the cliff. Um, uh, and in the second one, it's a it, it's a kind of a, a dystopian on a very small scale, really, because it's about a family tragedy. So it's it is about it's still about things kind of all going horribly wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, it seems to be a pet subject of mine. Um, uh, yeah, and that, that I suppose the, the different the main difference for me between the two books is 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 a technical one. As like the first novel is. Um, written in the first-person narrative in the present tense. So it's an unreliable narrator, um, and it's all very um, kind of small small screen, small focus, narrow focus. And then um, for the second one, I wanted to have a go at writing in the third person because I find it really, really difficult. So uh, I needed to introduce a few more characters and... Um, and write it in a, in the past tense and in the third person. So that that's kind of for me. That's the main difference between the two novels. Is is uh, I mean the stories are different, very different. And the um, and I, th- I think the other thing I really wanted to do in the second one is try to inject a bit more humour. I mean there is I think there's humour in the first one, but it's 
incredibly black so it's um fairly invisible but um the second one hopefully it's there, there is a bit more of a humorous element to it even though it's still dealing with you know it's dealing with the death of a teenager so it's um it's it's very it's still dark oh, i'm a big fan of fan of the dark stuff so. yeah uh, yeah me too i have a, I have a <laughs> tendency maybe to go a little too too far but the the now the climate change in, in is it because here I f- we have so many lunatics like you know saying it's not happening and it's like it's happening yeah like, look is does that is that just solely an american idiot thing or is that going on all over oh no i mean I, yeah but i think that um that's a universal problem really and and i mean part of the motivation for writing the first novel was um was just absolute frustration. I mean, I started writing it probably in 2000, about, no, actually, it was probably about 1998. And uh, I was reading all this stuff in, um, you know, books and uh, just stuff that I was finding around about climate change and um, and none of it was getting reported in the media. You know, and occasionally you'd get like a, like a local news story on the TV and it's like, Oh, when you know when we have climate change, it's going to be fantastic because no one's going to have to go on holiday abroad anymore because the weather's going to be great in England and uh, we're going to be able to grow our own grapes. So we won't have to buy wine off the French anymore because we'll we'll produce our own. And um, you know, and it was really on that level. It was absolutely moronic. And uh, and I just thought, well, why is people should be scared about this? You know, it's like if the if the sea levels are rising and if the if the gulf stream's going to switch off then that's going to have such a huge impact on on life on our little island and you know inland waterways are going to flood you're going to have fresh water supplies being uh, becoming salinated and you know and that's and you're going to have um less opportunity for food supply and you know all these things that people just weren't considering and then you know the government will put plans in to build these massive um, housing complexes in a flood zone, you know, in an area that is known to be flood, that will be flooded within 20 years' time. And, you know, let's spend billions and billions of pounds on building houses in this area. You know, you just think there's just nothing joined up going on here. And, And I found it all really frustrating. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not a scientist. All I can do is read... The research as much research as I can get my hands on and talk to people in universities and academics who are actually researching this stuff and then um, and then I'll take all that and then I'll just make it up you know kind of what which is the fun of being a, fi- a fiction writer really you just take the facts and then if you don't if you don't like them you can change them a bit like a bit like a, bit like a local news reporter really you know it's like it's not that different yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so uh, I can't remember what the question was, but yes, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the loonies, yeah, because it's like ni- it's perplexing to me how the media handles such things because it's like ninety eight percent. There's some statistics it's like ninety seven or ninety eight percent of the climate change scientists agree that we're headed down a dark road, and yeah. it's and yet pe- and I think there's also this weird denial or arrogance upon humanity where we're like we'll figure it out like it's like sooner or later we're this all's going to catch up to us <laughs> it's like it's yeah well I, 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 I mean I think the scary aspect of it is that instead of 
people thinking, well, our kids have got to grow up in this mess. Um, people think, oh, the kids will sort it out, you know. And I think that narcissism, that, going back to narcissism, doesn't help that because, you know, everyone's telling their kids they're going to be a brain surgeon or they're going to be the president of the United States or they're going to be, you know, someone really, really, really important. Um, instead of teaching them that, you know, yeah, we've made a bit of a mess and actually if you, you know, if you want to make a change, it might be better if you didn't learn to drive and if you start to ride a bike instead or, you know, just make small everyday changes that actually will have an impact. And I, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't see much hope in all that, really. I, think. <laughs> I mean, Stephen Hawking's like two weeks ago was like, I give humanity a thousand years and I know he's smarter than me, but I'm like, you're being awfully generous. Yeah, very optimistic. <laughs> Yeah, like yeah, and the thing is, as soon as you say that, people, I mean, I think that's silly, you know, it's like silly money, you know, it's like it's just, oh, well, we've got a thousand years, it's fine then, you know, another, my my 20 years or whatever it is I've got left to live is going to make, no, you know, I'm not going to make any difference to that, I'm not going to make any impact on that, and I just, you know, I think people have got to start seeing that, actually, we're already seeing changes, and I think, I read somewhere a long time ago that, um, the results that the results from climate change or the impact from climate change is always kind of felt 40 years after the event so what we're experiencing now is as a result of what what happened in the 60s or the 70s um and so you know the, the amount of pollution that we've produced over those intervening 40 years the impact of that is still to be felt and obviously it's going to be a lot worse than what was happening in the 60s because in the 60s, you know, consumerism hadn't, still hadn't really taken the hold that it has now. So, I, th I mean, that, that kind of information just doesn't seem to be getting out there. I mean, that's... I know Al Gore's film and, you know, there's been some fantastic documentaries made, but, it, but it, that stuff needs to be in the mainstream and it's just not. Yeah. You know, so the, 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 the media seems to be terrified to put anything out there that isn't positive or optimistic or or you know unrealistically threatening <laughs> you know it's like let's let's make our threats as unrealistic as possible yeah they i mean you know, like like you know we're going to get hit by an alien spaceship if you go out in your garden after eight o'clock in the evening you know something like that that's that's the kind of thing that goes on the news <laughs> just nonsense <laughs> yeah i mean i i i don't know about the media over the over the and in in England, but I mean, it's like here, it's all owned by these. You know, it's like you NBC is owned by GE. GE makes bombs. <laughs> it's like yeah. these horrid companies own the media. It's like, of course, they're keeping. And it's like, it's amazing the things that are going on with the United States government. That yeah, and I seek that stuff out, and you find out things like you know certain laws being passed that are just tromping on civil liberties, and it's just like really. Like, people should be up, and, but it's like, you know, give them a honey boo-boo and keep them, keep them fat and complacent. <laughs> it's like, that's yeah. how I feel that they're doing it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this whole Monsanto thing is, is really scary, I think. You know, but it's because it's all about a few people protecting their own interests, and those people now seem to have pretty much control of, of the legal system, and governments and you know it 
it's really hard to start talking about that stuff without sounding like some kind of nut job conspiracy theorist. But but it that is what's happening. <laughs> it, yeah. And, and you get, I've gotten, I've had people say that to me, like, oh, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. It's like everything I state or post or do on my show is like, it's based in fact. It's not like, I'm yeah. not talking about chemtrails or fucking loony shit like that. It's like, but. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. And, it's, and it just seems, yeah, it's it's like companies like Monsanto, you know, they, they look for the crack all the time. The, you know, they ju- they just need to get that foot in the door. And as soon as they've got their foot in the door and they've got a major foot in the door here now, you know, then it's only a matter of time before everything else kind of falls um, into their, you know, into their path. And and that's the real trouble. I mean, and the, um, the EU, I don't know if you know, the EU have just suspended use of um, pesticides that kill bees. Um, for they've suspended it for two years, and hopefully that you know that will be perpetuated. But you know that's that's a big setback for Monsanto. But you know you kind of think it's two years. That's temporary. Monsanto aren't going to worry about that. They you know they they have a long term plan, and they've been chipping away at things for years and years and years and years. I mean you know two years is nothing to them. Yeah. And you know and and you kind of think well probably the only reason the EU's passed that is because they think well. America has no bees anymore. They have to import bees from, I think, Germany or something. America has to buy its bees in. So if we, you know, if we nurture our bee population, then we can make a killing selling these bees over to America because Monsanto's killing all theirs off. So, you know, it's, I've no doubt that there's business interests behind all these decisions, but at least, you know, on some some level somewhere, someone's doing something is that real? Um, real that we're having? In the disaster. We're really having bees shipped over here from from you guys. I think so. Yeah, there's, there was a documentary on. Again, I can't remember the name. Uh, of it. Yeah, My memory's I, terrible. But I actually have that. I haven't watched that yet. That's a uh, boy. The right, the right wing conservatives would be furious if they knew uh, foreign bees were coming in here and stealing American bee jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Have they, have they got? Have they got the right visas? That's. Uh, I suppose they're called. They're probably called visas. Sorry, <laughs> that was a good one. I, I'm a big fan of that of pun. But it's pun, like, yeah. it's um, like somebody said this quote to me last week, and I don't know if it's true, but like Einstein said, like once the bees go, like that's the sign of that everything's crumbling. And I don't know how yeah. legit that quote is, but you know that's. Well, a, you can't have food without bees. There's no food without bees. What am I going to put in my honey? Food grows because bees pollinate. Yeah. They but they they spread pollen from one plant to another and you know you d- you don't get fruit without bees you don't you don't get anything without bees so it is it's disastrous if, if the bee population dies it's so boy. and uh, there was one thing that they're you, essential and, uh, and uh, we got we got super political <laughs> but which yeah. my show continue, but you said something <laughs> which i'm always a bit scared about because i don't really know what i'm talking about so it's kind of <laughs> you, well i'll believe it anyway but you did say you said something in one of our email exchanges about the, uh, I believe you said it was the Americanization or the or the of, of the healthcare system over in England, and that sounds uh, terrifying. Is that? I know. Yeah. There's well. There's there's been. I mean, I I don't know how much you know about Margaret Thatcher, but she basically turned. She she 
she kind of single-handedly with her government destroyed a lot of our kind of social structure um, by selling off all the national assets. So she sold off the railways, she sold off the, sold off the phone company, she sold off the airlines, she sold off the the, um, the the utilities companies, the gas and electricity and water companies. They all got sold to private companies, and so they're now all profit-making companies. So all those things, you know, A, they don't work properly, B, they cost a fortune. Um, and the one thing she didn't touch or the two things, she didn't touch education, she didn't touch health, um, or she said she wasn't going to. But then Tony Blair came in and he started to, he kind of took up where Maggie left off and started to chip away at what was left, um, you know, because the National Health Service obviously presents a huge opportunity for government to make money by selling to private companies. So, but, but, you know, they keep chipping away at that and there's huge opposition to it. Um, from the public in the UK so they kind of they do it they, they kind of have started to do it by stealth really you know in um, my, my second novel is partly set in a psychiatric hospital and the reason I did that was because well one of the reasons I did that was my dad used to run the hospital that I've written about in the book um, and that's now closed down and, and mental health was the first the first part of the national health system to go and that's because you know it was an easy one to get rid of because no one really cares about what happens to people with mental health issues at the bottom you know they kind of like to pretend they don't exist so um so so that was kind of the beginning of the attempt to kill our national health system and that that kind of continues really so um, there's a, there's a kind of an ongoing battle to introduce a private healthcare system into the UK, even though, you know, it's proven to not work. Um, there is no better example of that than here in the US, and yet, you know, we, we're choosing not to acknowledge that for some yeah. reason. Because, uh, yeah, no one cares about the people, it seems. As I was sitting next to a guy no. at a restaurant the other day, and he was talking about his surgery that he had upcoming, and he's like, I have insurance, and this is still going to put me, like, some astronomical money amount of money in debt like t over twenty thousand dollars now he, oh. i was like how and it's like he has insurance and he's getting screwed like this and it's just yeah. like it's it's just amazing like when will enough be enough for these corporations and it's just like what how many people's lives do you need to destroy to and yeah by, to well the, i mean what? everything is a commodity isn't it it's open season every Everything's a commodity. I mean, even, you know, if you look at what animals exist, it's like the only animals that you see out in the fields are the ones that we're, we're going to eat. You know, it's like they, they, you know, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of cows everywhere, and that's because they're useful to us and we can sell them. I mean, it's, you know, it's, that, that, again, is another element of narcissism, isn't it? You know, it's like you only allow things to proliferate if they benefit you in some way and that's it's, it's all kind of tied in I think but I yeah it's, it's quite scary it scares I'm gonna, me <laughs> I'm gonna need a drink after this interview <laughs> yeah so it's cheerful isn't it what should we talk about now <laughs> we should we should hang out we would we'll have a real party <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, now just to 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 wrap up where um 
uh, any websites and and things where people my my listeners can go and get your books and learn more about you you do have a website right i, I, was I have a website yeah that's just, my it's just my name or one word dot com and uh, your books are available on amazon and and in bookstores there, yeah 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 have you, have the you, usual places have you uh, if somebody wanted to turn one of your books into a film would you want to be the one who writes the screenplay uh no not necessarily but i'd, I'd um I'd like John Cusack to be in it, if that'd be all right. <laughs> you know, uh, he used to live around the corner for me in Chicago, him in the... Uh, in really? The, yeah, and I used to... Oh, I, I love him. I used to work at a bar. <laughs> he's he's a Johnny Lefto, left-winger, too. Oh, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, I follow his Twitter feed. He's great. Oh, I need to follow him. Yeah, he's... Uh, but, yeah, I'd always see him, and he, he drank a lot more when in his younger days, but he used to come into the pub I worked at quite a bit and be quite sloppy. All right, which... Which pub was that? The only pub I really know in Chicago is the Empty Bottle because I've just done loads of gigs there with bands. Oh, but. this this was a really shitty bar called Burton Place, but uh, I know the Empty Bottle well. Have you? Have you a, the Empty Bottle's great. Yeah, I loved I loved it in there. Yeah, it's great. It's a great gig. I uh, yeah. Do you did you get to spend a lot of time in Chicago or was it in and out? Uh, just well, no. Usually, like be there for a couple of days. So get to wander around a bit and um the um the last band that i managed that uh fuji and miyagi their booking agent was well still is based in chicago so um so we always used to make sure we had a bit of extra time there to get to see them and hang out a bit and just wonder I, I went out to oak park um once to see the hemingway house and the frank lloyd wright house and those places um, Are you big? My friend actually used to live in uh, one of Hemingway's old apartments. <laughs> I oh, really? I couldn't. Uh, yeah, it was on. I believe it was on Dearborn, and I I couldn't use the restroom and be like, "Oh, Hemingway probably threw up in here." I <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was I was going to say, does it smell? But that was probably a bit rude of me. <laughs> uh, no, I mean he was a boozer. I'm sure he he and he he was a stinky mother. Uh, yeah. <laughs> who are Who are some of the writers that you uh, you tend to? Uh, were you a big? Are you a big Hemingway guy? Uh, not really. I've I have I've read a couple of his, um, and then a couple I kind of struggled with. I like I love T. C. Boyle. Oh yeah, American writers. Um, I lo I love David Sedaris. I think he's he's like my favourite writer at the moment. I used to work with his he's, sister, Amy. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, I just he's just wonderful. Yeah, he's, he's so funny. He, it's yeah. I mean, it's like that's such a. I I write a lot of stuff similar, but it's like oh god, he just yeah. It's like no one's ever going to be better than that guy in that department. <laughs> it's like yeah, and I th I think it's his voice as well because I think once you've heard his actual voice, and then you read his stuff, you just hear him. Yeah. Kind of he's he's just reading it to you really, and it's it's just he's he's just got such a distinctive voice and. I don't care. I mean, I, someone was complaining about how he just, you know, they say, oh, he just tells the same stuff over and over again about his family. And it's like, well, that's what storytelling is, I think. You know, it's a, it is just the same stories regurgitated. If someone can tell you the same story over and over and you're captivated each time and you laugh like hell each time, then that's a brilliant storyteller, I think, you know. It's, uh, that's quite a skill. And I, I think he's, he's brilliant. I love him.
Yeah, it's it's hard to read him in public though, because it's like I've read it where I'm like cracking up, and I'm like, people must think I'm out of my mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't read him on the bus, really. Yeah, it's um, but um, well, thank you very much, and uh, you don't do you, do you, you do you Twitter a lot? Do you have a Twitter? Uh, I believe I've... I'm. I haven't quite got to grips with Twitter. I am on there. Um, I do throw the occasional. Um, if I think I've had a witty thought, I'll put it on there. But that really doesn't happen very often. <laughs> um, I, I'm on Facebook more, um, partly due to just travelling a lot all the time and never being anywhere where my friends are. So um, I'm, I, Facebook tends to be a bit more uh, up my street. But I am, I'm going to try and get to grips with Twitter a bit more. All right. Well, when I post, I'm just not that good at it. Well, well, thank you very much for doing the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Conversations with Matt Dwyer. If you like the show, tell your friends, tweet about it, get on top of a hill with a bullhorn, and yell it into the valley that you like my show. If you really super-duper like the show, you can donate money to it, because Dustin Marshall, the man, the brain behind this whole operation who makes... It's impossible for you to hear this voice of mine, this nasally voice. We, uh, especially Dustin, sacrifice a great deal of our life to bring you this show. And uh, we would like to be rewarded and shown that we're doing a good job by being able to keep our electricity on and eat. So that would be cool. And if you can't afford to donate money, you can go to my website there on the, the page on feralaudio.com and go through my Amazon link and you can buy some shit on Amazon. You know that you can buy fucking anything on Amazon. You could probably buy the head of a severed cat on Amazon. Or the severed head of a cat. I'm just saying, it doesn't matter. Either way, I get a kickback of that money. And, I, and Dustin, and that would be great because we could probably use it. I'm not, you know. You could also follow me on Twitter, Matt underscore Dwyer at twitter.com. Feral Audio has a Twitter. You might want to follow Twitter on uh, on there. Listen to the other shows on Feral Audio. Gong Teeny, Steve Agee's got a great show. Johnny Pepperton's show I love. Duncan Trussell. Thank you for listening. Power to the people.
National Security Agency to assess and flag citizens of the country who may present a threat to its security. <laughs> the NSA has clearance to wiretap by any means necessary. Tapped. Incidental recordings of private conversations from the files of the NSA. Now on feralaudio.com. <laughs>